Welcome to the first uh, edition of this uh, sort of new generation, this new iteration of the Mythgard Academy classes. Uh, as I think all of you know, I'm Professor Olson, and um, we are gathered here today to start talking about the Two Towers. Let me give it just a, a brief introduction, though. Uh, for people who are new, I know that there are many people uh, that are new here. I'm looking at the, uh, the names in our attendee list today, and I see a lot of uh, names that I've seen before on uh, the Facebook page or on Twitter, uh, but which I haven't yet seen in one of our sessions. So let me... Uh, uh, there are, of course, as Ed points out, quite a few of the usual suspects as well. Uh, but, uh, but, but there are, some, there are some, uh, some new victims here too. So let me just sort of explain, uh, first of all, how our interface works here so that you know uh, sort of what's going on here. I would like to be able to do an interactive session here. Um, there are quite a lot of you. <clears throat> there are quite a lot of you, so I have to warn you, of course, at the very beginning uh, that I'm certainly not going to be able to address everybody's comment or question. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to be kind of uh, uh, sort of sifting through um, and picking out sometimes somewhat haphazardly uh, comments that you make. So, uh, but anyway, I will try to get to as many as I can, but I, I hope you'll be understanding if I can't uh, address every single one. Um, I I am referring to addressing comments, however, and some of you might be wondering how you do that. Uh, on your uh, GoToWebinar control panel, you will see a little box that says questions, and you can type in your questions there and submit them. When you do, those show up to me, and I will say, I will read out the ones that I um, that I choose and uh, you know that, I, that I'm going to address, and uh, and then I will talk about it. So, Chris, uh, I too was thinking about you as soon as I saw you on the on the on the list here. Um, Chris uh, Lawson actually experienced experienced an earthquake the last time he was in a session with me in the last Riddles in the Dark episode. So yes, Chris, w w let us hope that no one uh, in this session experiences a, a natural disaster of any kind. Um, uh, anyway, uh, so uh, so let's, let's, again, let's all hope for the best here. Um, but uh, good, let's see. Uh, Sharon asks if there's a chat room for you to utilize. I don't Sharon, I don't have one set up right now. That's a good question. I sh it's something I should look into, but I don't have that set up yet. I know that some people like to be able to talk to each other um, uh, while um, uh, while we're having class, um, which, of course, I can't officially approve of, Sharon, but I suppose this is not an official class, uh, so, of course, you're welcome to do that. Um, but uh, anyway... Um, uh, okay, Sharon wants me to, to, to yes, I, I know it's fun, Sharon. I totally recognize that. Uh, but anyway, we will... Um, uh, we'll, 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 we'll do what we can. Well, in, in our session tonight, of course, we're going to be talking about the first three, uh, chapters of the two towers. Um, and I would love to hear topics and suggestions that you have for stuff that you would like to talk about. I, of course, have some things that I want to talk about, um, and I will hope to get through those, but I, but I am also very interested to hear what you guys are interested about. Um, and uh, I would actually, I, I would ask for your assistance in helping me to sort through the comments that I get. If you have a suggestion or a question about sort of a general topic that you would like to hear uh, me talk about, that you'd like for us to discuss in these first three chapters of The Two Towers, if in, when you enter that into the question box, just put the word topic first. So just type topic colon uh, and then give me your topic. That way I can be able to pick that out from among, uh, from among the, other, uh, the other comments that people make. So... Uh, so, thank you. Um, now, uh, there will also be a number of times what I'm going to be doing here is this. 
Uh, I'm going to be sharing my screen with you here, uh, and when I do that, you'll be able to see some passages from the text that I particularly wanted to talk about, that I wanted to be able to get up on your screen so we could discuss them together, as I'm sure you probably know. Uh, my very favorite thing to do is to be is to do careful, close reading. So rather than just have a sort of a very broad and general discussion of the first three chapters, there are a number of passages and of course, a couple poems uh, that I would like to look at more closely. Um, let me look at a couple of the topic suggestions that you guys have already made here, um, and uh, and then I can, let's see, um, let's see, K has a good topic, though it's, it's long, I have to, I have to admit also, really, um, Lots and lots of text. I often have a hard. I, I don't have time to read it all. Um, but Kay is talking about uh, myth and heroes, uh, and in particular, looking at uh, sort of Aragorn uh, and his uh, his his view of himself, his indecision and doubt, um, Boromir's view that he has failed, uh, and the way that these things are being um, are being examined. Um, uh, see, uh, and in specific, Kay was wondering about um, the way that the screenwriters in the movie uh, have tended to to sort of drag the heroes down. And Kay, I certainly agree. Um, that is, to me, one of the most persistent trends uh, in the film. Uh, and if there is one thing that, you know, I mean, if, if, if people were to ask me, what's the one thing you dislike most about the Lord of the Rings films? What I would say is not that scene when... Frodo kicks Sam out and makes him go home. But rather, what I would say, if I had to pick one thing, what I would say is uh, that exact trend, Kay, that uh, the way that it sort of tries to take all the heroes down a peg. But but Kay is sort of not exactly making a defense. Um, so it would be easy to lay the blame at the screenwriter's feet, but it seems to me that they were likely just tailoring their work according to what they thought a popular audience would want to see and be capable of relating to. I agree. Yet, she says, Tolkien's works are enormously, enormously easy to relate to on their own, as their widespread popularity attests. Why then do we make uh, do we make uh, what then do we make of the push to drag heroes down from their heights? Um, I think. See, I do think. Well, so I, let me just say first of all, okay, I'm just speculating here, and I don't really know what screenwriters are trying to do and everything. But I certainly agree that that is a general trend, um, and it certainly does seem to. It has always seemed to me, anyway, to have exactly that motivation. That is, uh, that motivation to make the characters more easily relate, uh, make them more easy for us to relate to them. You know, like, oh, we couldn't possibly, nobody can relate to Aragorn, so we need to make him more torn and divided and everything. Um, but as you point out, Kay, he is quite easy to relate to, actually. He is a hero. He's greater than us, and so to some extent, we don't identify with him, uh, precisely. Um, I, I, my, my life circumstances are quite different in lots of ways from Aragorn's, actually. Um, so, but that's not the point, right? The point is not to sort of see yourself in them uh, and to sort of be able to imagine yourself. I mean, this is uh, the... To me, the ultimate version of this, sort of the, the, the most exaggerated version of this particular tendency uh, in, in modern uh, narrative art, and I'm including here books and movies, 
is actually not a movie but a book. It would be Twilight. Uh, Twilight is the quintessential the the quintessential self-projection book. Right? I mean, the character of Bella, the protagonist of that book, is a complete cipher. Uh, she is a, a completely empty. And I don't mean that she's a bad character or whatever. Actually, what Myers does with her is fairly skillful in accomplishing what she does, which obviously works. Um, but she is a total cipher that you just kind of pour yourself into, and it allows you to project yourself into the text and um, and and off you go then, sort of into that particular kind of fantasy land. Um, and, of course, those of you who know me will know that when I say fantasy land, I don't just mean that as an insult. Um, it's an interesting kind of thing. Um, I think that it's very limited. Um, I'm not a big fan of that kind of narrative, mostly because it's limited entirely by yourself. In the end of the, at the end of the day, you're just sort of telling a story about yourself. Um, and I think um, it's much more powerful to actually take you outside yourself um, and not just be looking at yourself in the mirror uh, all the way through. But anyway, so um, that's... <clears throat> um, but, Kay, I do agree that that does seem to be what the films are doing, but it does seem to be... It, I, I think it's a general trend, and there are two things there, right? There's that tendency towards let us make characters... Um, somebody that we can kind of, they sort of look like us in the mirror, but then there's also that let's take heroes down, which I do think is a separate thing. It's the, it's the sort of the same thing that seems to motivate a lot of dark fantasy and stuff. Um, you know, the, the uh, sort of uh, Game of Thrones approach uh, to fantasy. Probably should have opened a whole can of worms by mentioning that, but uh, but anyway, there and just in in the way in which you know Game of Thrones, for instance, is 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 very frequently uh, you know very demandingly <clears throat> questioning the ideas of honor and heroism and everything, and you know is there any such thing as a hero, and is there anything that's really good? And um, uh, anyway, so that's that's something clearly that a lot of modern uh, fiction, both, you know, both both books and films are really interested in doing. Tolkien was not interested in doing that. And K, I agree with you, granted the the the, the continuing um, way, not just the popularity in the sense, sense of the number of people that love Tolkien, but, um, but the profundity of the way in which Tolkien impacts so many readers uh, still today, it seems to me pretty clear that he's kind of onto something, too. Um... Okay, that was an example of how I should not indulge too much in talking about one single comment. Uh, but anyway, Kay, that was a great way to start things off. Daniel wants to talk about the wind song. Ah, fear not, Daniel. We shall get to the wind song. Um, uh, I also want to get to the Gondor song that uh, that uh, Aragorn sings, but I'm slightly less sanguine that we'll get that far into my plan. Uh, but the but the Boromir song, I think we can. Uh, I think I think I feel confident there. Um, Let's see. Sean asks, how much in League were Saruman and Sauron? The movie implies that Saruman was sort of bucking for a right-hand man spot, but I don't believe that's the case in the books. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. They're clearly communicating. I mean, he is... he Saruman, that is, has been to some extent enslaved. Um, Gandalf describes it later on in the book as, you know, the, the, you know the, the spider caught in a steel web. You know, that he has been ensnared. He has been entrapped um, by Sauron. But Gandalf also says, in a different place, that he 
is um, in Isengard, he is uh, still operating in rivalry and not yet in service to Mordor. Um, and this is actually one of the things, one of the dynamics which they really simplify. And I, you know, I, I never want to be too harsh on a film adaptation that simplifies a thing from a book because it is so much more uh, difficult to do really sort of subtle and complicated relationships like that in a film, um, given the time restraints and everything. But anyway, um, that, I'm thinking, of course, of the line in the film when, uh, you know, Saruman is at the Palantir and Sauron's voice is like, build me an army worthy of Mordor, right? So that basically the whole arming of, uh, you know, the, the, you know, his people and his army, Saruman's, is just, he's, you know, just like, aye, aye, sir, I'm, I'm going to do your bidding. And that's clearly not the case in the book. Um, he is still setting up for himself. And the two of them, Saruman and Sauron, are both of them attempting with varying degrees of success to use the other one, right? They're not in league in the sense that they're not, they're not allies, they're not friends, they're not buddies. Right? They're not buddies, they're not friends, they're not even allies. Um, they, are, they are engaged in a relationship of mutual exploitation, um, or at least that's what they both think they're doing, but it seems like Sauron is succeeding a little bit more uh, at that end than Saruman is, mostly because Saruman's bid to get the One Ring has, uh, has failed already. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Don't worry, Karen, we're not going to talk too much about the movies. I, 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 you know, a couple of people have had comparison questions, and I don't want to turn away from, uh, from questions, but we, we, we are going to get into a close discussion of the book here, Karen. Fear not, fear not. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, okay, let's see. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kathleen is pointing out that Saruman and Saruman are not even equals, really. No, again, Saruman wants to be. You know, he is a he is a um, he is setting himself up in rivalry. Um, he wishes that he could be equal to Sauron, that he could oppose him. Um, but it's, in a sense, kind of a joke, from Sauron's point of view, kind of a joke. I mean, he's got an army, um, but, uh, you know, could they go toe-to-toe? No, no way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, both Brandon and Seth at almost exactly the same moment pointed out, but aren't they both Maiar? Yes, but there are Maiar, and then there are Maiar. Um, Sauron is clearly a big... I mean, like Gandalf, for instance, um, has no doubts about the fact that he couldn't just, you know, walk up to the, to the, to the, you know, to Barad-dur and, um, you know, cast down uh, Sauron on his own. You know, I mean, he's... Sauron individually is mightier than any of them individually. Um, so, so no, I mean, the fact that they're both Maiar doesn't mean that they are, um, they are equal. Like, it's it's easy to get into thinking of you know like a very simple hierarchy. You know, you've got the Valar up here, and you've got the Maiar down here, and then you've got the children of Iluvatar down here. Um, but it's not nearly so neat as that. Um, you've got wild variations on every level. You, some of the Valar, which are much stronger than others of the Valar, you've got some of the Maiar, which are really 
which are really strong and powerful, which in some ways actually can be power in, in some dimensions or in some aspects um, can be more powerful, more mighty than some of the Valar. Um, you've got uh, children of the Luvatar, you know, some of the elves and men who, you know, can, you know, compete with Maiar. So, I mean, that's, that's what happened, for instance. Like, every time you get a Balrog defeated by, uh, you know, by, by uh, one of the children of Iluvatar, by an incarnate being, um, like Glorfindel, you've got a children of Iluvatar taking, a child of Iluvatar taking down a Maiar. So, um, so it's not, uh, it's not, it's not quite as, uh, as, as sort of clean cut as that. Um, Rob asks, if Saruman acquired the One Ring, would he be able to contest Sauron? Rob, I, uh, yes, I think so. Or again, at least he thinks so. Just as notice Galadriel thinks so too, right? Um, in Galadriel's speech, one of the things that you can kind of overlook um, in her, you know, in place of the Dark Lord, you would have a queen speech, um, is notice how there's not even like, we're not even invited to ask the question, would she be able to defeat Sauron? Um she's going straight to after I defeated Sauron, what would it look like? <laughs> right? Like, that's not even that's not even a talking point at this point. Um, and I don't see any necessary reason to think that that's wrong. Um, I think she probably could. I think Saruman probably could. Um, but, I mean, that's it's a little bit unclear, but um, uh you know, Chris asks, is it the influence of the ring making her think that? Yeah, you know, Chris, it's a really interesting point. Like, to what, ex- to what extent does, uh, does Goadriel's speech there count as, uh, you know, to use the terminology that I usually use jokingly, count as a ring-induced monologue? Um, you know, like, you compare it, for instance, to... Boromir's actually a close comparison between these two. I think is um, um, very revealing. Actually, when you if you look at Galadriel's monologue, you know her in place of the Dark Lord, you'd have a Queen monologue, and then Boromir's uh, his speech when he's you know imagining you know setting himself up as a great king, benevolent and wise, and uh, and all that stuff. Um, both of the two of them have these fantasies, and notice that both of them have fantasies of themselves ruling after they defeat Sauron, and both of them, uh, though Boromir more explicitly, excuse me, Boromir more explicitly, um, assumes, uh, not assumes, um, presumes upon step one, I cast down Sauron, you know, in sort of trivial fashion. Um, That is to say, the victory over Sauron is the first phase of this sort of fantasy that Boromir has of himself as strong and powerful and mighty, and of course, just and good and benevolent. Um, But, uh, and and then he goes on from there to kind of build things up. Um, Galadriel doesn't go there. Um, And I think we can see... So we can see some similarities, certainly. Again, both of them are imagining themselves in very grandiose fashion, right? But Galadriel throughout is showing a more... um, uh, is is showing a more... Well, she's more self-aware, basically, of what's going on. That is, of the temptation that she is experiencing. Boromir is, at that moment, when Boromir's going off, he's totally not driving the bus anymore. I mean, Boromir is, 
um, in this like ring-induced fantasy land, right? Um, and if you tried, as indeed Frodo does try to say, uh, um, point of order, Boromir, that's not going to happen <laughs> because the ring corrupts everything it touches, uh, and you'd be corrupted by the ring if you do that. And he's like, oh yeah, whatever. Boromir won't listen to it, right? He doesn't recognize that it's a temptation. He doesn't recognize that he's being lied to, um, that he is deceiving, not even just being deceived, that he's deceiving himself, really. Um, Goadriel does realize. She doesn't forget about the corruption. And this is actually one thing, um, by the way, sidebar, Karen, this is actually why I often do make references back to the movies while discussing the books, because there are a bunch of times when things happen in the movies, even if I disagree with them, in fact, sometimes because I disagree, or because I disagree with them, or, or you know, sort of notice the discrepancy between what the film does and what the book does. Um, that really draws my attention to stuff that I never really noticed before. And this is one example. Um, the way that the film does Galadriel's speech, right, when she does that, like, I am in, like, negative color, and, like, uh, you know, she has that totally sort of psychedelic moment, right? And then she comes out of it, and it's like, I passed the test. And seeing that made me re- it made me realize more fully than I really ever had before wait a second, actually that's not how it goes that's not what that speech is saying she is not indulging in this alternative you know reverse color thing this is not her briefly flirting with that temptation that is this is not her just saying like Boromir is, I'm getting carried away, I'm totally into this, I think this, I'm totally convinced this sounds like a great idea, I see no downside, let's, oh, wait, wait, actually, never mind. That's not her process, right? If you read that whole description, in place of the Dark Lord, you would have a queen, but I would not be dark, but, 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 you know, but, uh, ah, I almost had it, and beautiful as the dawn, um, Anyway, treacherously fair. She does. <laughs> I mean, all of these things that are, that are you know that are sort of been associated with you know, the, the 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 treacherously fair thing, right? Um, people have already kind of picked up on this. There's that potential in her, and she sees that potential, right? That whole description is describing the terms that she uses to describe herself are unlike Boromir's, not just unrelenting, unrelentingly great. Like I'm totally convinced that everything would be awesome and I would be wonderful if I had the ring. She's describing why things would be bad. She is explaining this is why my having the ring is a, would be a bad idea. Because sometimes I think having the ring would be awesome and I could do so much good with it. And I've totally, I'll be honest with you Frodo, I've totally flirted with this idea. But here's what would really go down. What would really go down is um, in place of the Dark Lord, you would have a queen, right? And you do, you, and, and she goes through the whole scenario of what it would really look like. That is her. That is not her being overwhelmed by the ring. That's her seeing through what the ring is doing. Um, so again, they're closely parallel in a lot of ways. But I think in many, in some ways, we can see she doesn't pass the test at the end. You know, again, that sort of when like Kate Blanchard is all breathless at the end, and she's like, "I passed the test." I totally, I totally said no to that thing. Wow, right? That's not what Galadriel's saying. She's already passed the test. This, you know, that, that's that's done, right? She passed the test when she didn't take the ring from Frodo right away, right? Um, and she's like, no, no, I'm, I'm, um, I recognize what would happen if I gave in, and I'm not going to go there. 
right um it's pretty cool but uh i'm totally getting um distracted from the two towers now um <laughs> talking about the fellowship of the ring um yeah yeah brianna says uh go can boost uh, in a boast potential victory is all she wants, but it doesn't guarantee victory against Sauron. Feanor did the same, and we all know what happened to him. Um, yes, yes. Now, the level of delusion involved, I think, with Galadriel especially, and potentially Saruman as well, um, uh, I think their level of delusion is a little bit less than Feanor's. Um, because I think, now granted, Feanor is greater than Galadriel, um, so it's kind of, you know, it's like, does it really work? You know, if you sort of put it in, like, SAT analogy form. True or false? Feanor is to Galadriel as Melkor is to Sauron. And I'm going with... No. No. I don't think so. Um, yes, Feanor was the greatest, most powerful of all the children of Iluvatar. Um, yes, you know, if if if... Feanor was A-list, Galadriel was B-list. But with Melkor and Sauron, we're not talking about A-list and B-list. We're talking about orders of magnitude there. We're talking about, um, you know, really uh, different... Uh, not only different orders of magnitude, different orders of... of, of, of uh, I just... I don't... I, I think that the gap there is much bigger than the gap between Feanor and Galadriel. But, Brianna, needless to say, that's uh, uh, a fair reminder, I think. Um... Okay, I'm now going to take a break and and proceed to talk about the first topic that I wanted to talk about, and a couple of you have already brought it up, um, so uh, I feel the more confident uh, in doing that. Um, so I want to talk about uh, Boromir. One of the things which, one of the passages which always kind of puzzled me um, when I first read, well, not the very first time I read them, but I remember, I mean, the, you know, the, I, I, I look back on the times when I was reading The Lord of the Rings in high school, and, and uh, you know, this, and there are several passages that I can remember um, that really kind of troubled me, that I couldn't figure out. Um, or, rather, more likely what it was, or, or more often what happened, was that I would believe I did know, and then I would I would eventually, down the road, recognize, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense at all. Um, and here's one of them. This is Boromir's uh, death speech, his uh, encounter with Aragorn here. Aragorn knelt beside him. Boromir opened his eyes and strove to speak. At last, slow words came. I tried to take the ring from Frodo, he said. I am sorry. I have paid. His glance strayed to his fallen enemies. Twenty, at least, lay there. They have gone, the halflings. The orcs have taken them. I think they are not dead. Orcs bound them. He paused, and his eyes closed wearily. After a moment he spoke again. Farewell, Aragorn. Go to Minas Tirith and save my people. I have failed. No, said Aragorn, taking his hand and kissing his brow. You have conquered. Few have gained such a victory. Be at peace. Minas Tirith shall not fall. Boromir smiled. I love Boromir smiled. Uh, Tolkien is the king of the well-timed short, simple sentence. Um, and Morgoth came, right, Chris? I know Chris Stevens from the Silmarillion 
seminars here, uh, but uh, Boromir smiled is a wonderful example too. Um, and the part of this that I that 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 I I didn't I, I never understood or rather for so long misunderstood was Aragorn's statement: "No, you have conquered. Few have gained such a victory." Um, and I. Coming right after that first paragraph, you know, his glance strayed to his fallen enemies. Twenty at least lay there. And I remember that moment, because my assumption always had been, in my first readings of the book, my assumption had always been, when he said, few have gained such a victory, he meant like, oh, don't feel like, you haven't lost, Boromir. I know you feel like you've lost, right? I mean, you were in this fight, right, against all these orcs, um, and you're dying now. Um, so you lost the battle, and you feel bad, because, I mean, okay, yeah, I'm like, I, I, t- I got the fact that he felt bad because he tried to take the ring from Frodo. I, but, but, but basically, it was, it, was, it was Aragorn's response to that that I didn't get. You know, when Aragorn says, no, you've conquered, few have gained such a victory. And I was like, well, I mean, he killed 20 orcs, like, single-handedly. That's pretty good, right? So maybe that's what, maybe that's the kind of the, the pep talk that Aragorn is giving, right? No, actually, this is awesome. Really, what you did here uh, really was good. Um, but no, of course, that isn't what he meant at all. Um, uh, he, it's his, he has, in fact... Um, as Chris was just saying, resisted the ring at the end. Um, he does achieve victory over himself, over his... Tem- we see him struggling with this when he comes back. Uh, we see him We see him recover himself immediately, right? Um, you know, a madness took me, but it has passed. It has passed. Um, he has already gotten control over himself again, and we see him struggling, still struggling, struggling with his guilt. Um when he returns to the company uh, before they all scatter. Um, And now, few have gained such a victory. Um, But, I think also there's even more to it than that. There's more to it than just you know, at the end of the day, you you, okay, okay, yeah, you gave in to to the lure of the ring for a while. That was bad, Boromir, but, um, but anyway, you're fine now, right? You, uh, you, you, now you're resisting it. Yes, but, <laughs> guy says he should have yelled, day shall come a whole bunch of times. Uh, <laughs> day shall come again. Yeah, guy said if he'd done that, he'd have been able to kill 70 instead of just 20. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, like I said, I think there's more. There's more than just the resisting of the ring. You have conquered. That's a big statement, right? You have conquered. In what sense has he conquered? Um, well, it wasn't... I didn't really finally put it together until I noticed this passage later on. Now, I know we're talking about chapters 1 through 3, but I'm going to stray from that for a second to glance ahead uh, to chapter 5 um, and the commentary back on this by Gandalf after they meet him again. Um, this is Gandalf's remark when Aragorn tells the story. Poor Boromir. I could not see what happened to him. It was a sore trial for such a man, a warrior and a lord of men. Galadriel told me that he was in peril, but he escaped in the end. I am glad. It was not in vain that the young hobbits came with us, if only for Boromir's sake. But that is not the only part they have to play. It was not in vain that the young hobbits came with us, if only for Boromir's sake. Okay, so I then go back to 
you have conquered. Few have gained such a victory. Um, what does that have to do with Marion Pippin? Because, I mean, okay, maybe he, you know, succeeded in resisting the ring in the end. Yeah, again, brief lapse, but, but then he came out of it. That would be conquering. Few have gained such a victory. That's fair enough to say, right? You know, it maintained, you know, Gollum didn't win that victory, right? Saruman hasn't uh, gained that victory. Um, So, you know, okay, cool. Uh, Isildur doesn't seem to have gained that victory. Footnote. If you read um, the, the, you know, the story of the Gladden Fields in Unfinished Tales, the sort of the fuller expanded version uh, of that, Isildur is planning to give the ring away. Now, people often quote this to me when I'm talking about this passage, but the thing I would insist on and keep in mind, that was written later than this, okay? When Tolkien came back and was writing that stuff later on, it seemed to be his desire to kind of rehabilitate Isildur a little bit. Um, that there's nothing within the text, in, in, in sort of in the time of Tolkien's story as it exists in the mid-50s, uh, when The Lord of the Rings is, is, is being published, that wasn't true of Isildur. One could not say that Isildur also had succeeded and was actually planning uh, to give away the ring that's actually contrary to what Gandalf says about him. Um, and which is, of course, all we know at this point, before Unfinished Tales is, uh, is, uh, um, is published. Anyway, um, That was my side note. Where was I before that? Um, you have conquered, few have gained such a victory. Okay, so again, I go back to Gandalf saying, um, it was not in vain that the young hobbits came with us, if only for Boromir's sake. So what did they accomplish? That's, but that's not the only part they have to play. What part did they play? What did Mary and Pippin, what do Mary and Pippin, if it's just about resisting the ring, what do Mary and Pippin have to do with it? Surely they played the smallest possible role in Boromir's resisting it. And surely, I mean, if, if Aragorn is looking at him and saying, hey, you have conquered. You know, y- you win, Boromir. You win. How did he win? Uh, vis-a-vis Merry and Pippin? Well, how he won is he died for them. Right? That was his victory. In death. Not despite his death. Not, like, I know you died, and that's kind of a downer, but really, on the other hand, like, if you look at the big picture, it's kind of a win, Boromir, right? I mean, the death thing is sad, but, you know, no, that's not the point. His death is the victory. That is the conquering. He has won. How has he won? What is the victory that he has gained that few have? Is that it's not just that he succumbed to the power of the ring, but then was like, eh, um he got away, right? Um, No, he has come around 180 degrees. He is not... Because remember, Boromir was was attracted to the ring from the beginning. Galadriel said he's in danger. He is... He he is, you know, being... the, The desire for the ring is eating away at him. So this is not just like, hey, you know, congratulations, Boromir. You, like, you know, pushed yourself back from the table that time. Fantastic. No, it's more than that, right? He has completely turned around. He has gone from, I am thinking only of my own glory. I am willing to sacrifice. I am willing to, to, to you know, kill. What would he have done to Frodo um, had he caught him? Um, I don't know. You know, I mean, would he have killed Frodo and taken the ring, uh, you know, like Gollum did? It seems possible that he might have done had he actually gotten his hands on Frodo. Now, instead of that, or in the place of that, now instead he has given up his own life. 
um, in trying to save Merry and Pippin. Now, he fails to save them from the orcs, but that's not the point. That isn't what matters, right? What matters is he himself has been saved because he sacrificed his life for his friends. Um, that This shows that that is the final consummation of his complete turning away from that entire sort of mode of thinking that led him to um, that led him to, uh, to, 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 to try to take the ring for himself. And that's why Gandalf says well, it was a good thing Merry and Pippin came with us. right? If they accomplished nothing else it was worth it to have them with us. Why? Just so that they could be on the spot to have Boromir die for them, right? Um, if they accomplish nothing else other than just being the helpless people who, uh, uh, who, who, for whom, Bor- who provided to Boromir the opportunity uh, to lay down his life for the good of others, they've, uh, uh, they've, they've, they've done it. Alyssa, thank you for that quotation. I was thinking about that, but I wasn't confident I'd get it exactly right. Um, Faramir's words, he died well, achieving some good thing. His face was more beautiful even than in life. Faramir, speaking of Boromir, uh, in the vision he had of him in the boat coming down the, the, the river. Um, he died well, achieving some good thing. And Alyssa, isn't it, there's a temptation almost to hear a kind of a biting irony, uh, n- not biting on Faramir's part, not that Faramir is being biting, but 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 there's there's a temptation to to, to hear an irony again. I'm, I used to take that passage that way. Faramir would say that he died well, achieving some good thing, and I'd be like, oh gosh, Faramir, that's embarrassing. Actually, he didn't achieve anything. They took the hobbits anyway, killed a bunch of them. I guess you know, uh, it counts as a win, but um. But he didn't actually... I hate to break this to you, Faramir. He did, but he did. He did achieve some good thing. Not, you know, despite his death, but in his death, through his death. This is one of the reasons... I remember I had this discussion with um, one of my students the very first time I ever taught Tolkien in a college class. Um, the, the, the question was, why is the death of Boromir at the beginning of the second book? Why doesn't it happen at the end of the first book? It's like, well, the you know the last chapter of the Fellowship of the Ring is called the Breaking of the Fellowship. Isn't doesn't isn't the Fellowship broken um, when when Boromir dies, right? Um, and there were many people who basically applauded that narrative change in the films when Boromir dies at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring instead of at the, in the opening scene of the Two Towers, um, and. Again, I'm not going to sort of do a sort of a more th- you know sort of thorough analysis of the whole kind of narrative trajectory of the films, but 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 talking about the books, uh, there's a very good reason why this happens. It is n- the breaking of the fellowship is not the death of Boromir. Much to the contrary, the death of Boromir is a good thing. That is a testimony to fellowship. The fellowship is broken when Boromir tries to take the ring from Frodo. That's the breaking. Right, it's broken at that point. Um, it is. It was primarily Boromir that I was thinking of when I titled this class. This is the first. Um, this is the first moment where the fellowship now is beginning to be recovered. It's broken in the sense that again we have Boromir turning as the primary thing, but of course it's also being scattered there at the end with Frodo and Sam going off on their own and everybody else running around in circles at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, 
so the fellowship is broken. At the beginning here of the two towers, one of the things that I think that we see is the emphasis on fellowship coming back together. Yes, is the fellowship scattered? Yes. Has the fellowship failed? No. Has that gone away? No, it's not gone away. It still is a really central thing, a really important thing. Boromir is the first one um, to sort of start this process of emphasizing the importance of their loyalty to each other, of their love for each other. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um... Rodrigo asks, can we say he turned from ambition to sacrifice? Like, it's a great way to say it, Rodrigo. I think uh, he that's exactly what he does. Um, and, and you can see it's, there's, there's, no, there's no two more diametrically opposed um, sort of directions for a character to go, right? Then he was going on the one hand in his little monologues to Frodo, right? Thinking only of himself. Um, again, he was thinking of his city, right? He was thinking, oh, it's, it's, it's all about Minas Tirith. It wasn't all about Minas Tirith, right? It was about him. Um, and we see that come out. So putting himself at the center and making everything else secondary to that, being willing to set other things aside, being willing to, to sacrifice other things for the sake of his own glory, right? Or to be willing to sacrifice everything, even his own life, for the sake of others. And in a sense, um, I let's see, one of you was asking Rachel... Um, uh, the, you know, is he also, in a sense, sacrificing himself for Minas Tirith? Um, yeah, he is, in a sense. But I actually think sacrificing himself for Marion Pippin um, is <laughs> it's hard to talk about this without just belittling it. I think that's way cooler, right? No, but. <clears throat> If he sacrificed himself... It's one thing to sacrifice yourself for your city, for your nation, right? For his people. I'm not saying that would have been bad or, you know, like, oh, that's a really kind of... That's kind of an A-minus self-sacrifice, Boromir. No, I mean, that's that's good. But sacrificing himself for Merry and Pippin only because they are his companions. Because they are his companions who are weak and in need. And he is strong and can help them, Right? Um, or at least should help them. Um, Rachel, you could actually turn it around and say, no, he was, you could argue, he was letting Minas Tirith down. And it seems like he's having doubts about this, p- potentially, here in his, on his, on his, uh, I was about to say his deathbed, but it's his death glade here, um, that he, uh, basically has lost the opportunity, you know, now, okay, I kind of threw my life away trying to protect these two hobbits. He knows they don't have the ring. He knows that, I mean, what are the consequences, like, globally speaking, what are the consequences of Merry and Pippin being taken by the orcs? Like, okay, Merry and P- I like Merry and Pippin, but okay, they're going to be taken off and they're going to be, you know, they're going to be tortured and whatever. Um, uh, uh, okay, sure. But one could be a little bit pragmatic about this and say, okay, all right, Boromir, let's think this through, right? Um, if you get yourself killed for the sake of Merry and Pippin, who's going to defend Minas Tirith then, right? you got to go. Your city is relying on you, Boromir. You have a responsibility to your city, right? Um, let him go. I mean, I'm sorry, you know, we can, we can, we can weep bitter tears for Merry and Pippin, but at the end of the day, um, Minas Tirith is more important, right? 
No, actually, it's not. Um, if he turns away from his companions, who are there in need, being taken away by orcs, if he lets them go because he wants to save himself for the sake of his city, no, that he wouldn't have. That's not a. That's that's not conquering. That's not what conquering looks like, right? Um, so, anyway, I think that that's. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Brandon points out that Aragorn says the company has played its part. Yes, in the taking of the ring, right? That is, it's no longer the company's part to support Frodo directly. But it is. But the company is not dissolved, right? It is still their part to look after each other. Um, yeah, yeah, good, good. Um, Yeah, good. Um, okay, uh, let me... Can we talk about the poem? I want to talk about the poem. Um, let's look at the lament for Boromir uh, that Aragorn and Legolas sing. Stanza one. Through Rohan, over fen and field, where the long grass grows, the west wind comes walking, and about the walls it goes. What news from the west, O wandering wind, do you bring to me tonight? Have you seen Boromir the Tall by moon or by starlight? I saw him ride over seven streams, over waters wide and gray. I saw him walk in empty lands until he passed away into the shadows of the north. I saw him then no more. The north wind may have heard the horn of the son of Denethor. O Boromir, from the high walls westward I looked afar, but you came not from the empty lands where no men are. Um... Uh, I don't want to get into too much detail, both because I'm almost ludicrously behind my own schedule, but also uh, because I... uh, Well, okay, that's the main reason. Um, But anyway, uh, notice uh, one thing... Actually, I can't... Okay, I can't forbear to mention this one point, because it's something I've been been really noticing. This past semester uh, at Mythgard, I taught a class called Beyond Middle-Earth. Several of the people uh, who are here tonight were in that class, actually. And uh, in that, we were reading a a bunch of Tolkien's um, works which are not Middle-Earth related. Many of Tolkien's works that are not Middle-Earth related. And in that, we did a a large section in the middle of the class on Tolkien's various assorted short poems, Um, a lot of it written um, early in his life, especially in the 20s and 30s. And um, one of the things that I really noticed coming to these poems again, the Lord of the Rings poems, after having studied um, a lot of that earlier poetry, notice the rhythms. uh, those of you who have studied his shorter poems, especially the ones that are uh, uh, published in The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, which you can get in the Tolkien Reader, um, or um, if you look at, uh, or you know, again for uh, the people who are in the Mythgard class, and we talked about it, you remember, guys, that there was one of his one of his really well established poetic patterns that he used a lot were alternating lines of four and three beats. So you'd have an iambic tetrameter line followed by an iambic trimeter line. So a four-beat line and then a three-beat line, four-beat line, three-beat line. Um, He uses this in The Man in the Moon Came Down Too Soon, for instance, and several others. Um, Notice that in the Lord of the Rings uh, poems, he's still using that same basic pattern. 
but instead of making it a really compressed, uh, at least compressed appearing uh, line form, instead of having short lines of of four beats and then three beats, four beats and then three beats, he becomes very fond of seven beat lines, and it's essentially the same kind of line. Um, uh, they often rhymed on alternate lines, the old style of poems. So I think it's it's actually kind of interesting stylistically to look at some of these later poems and compare them to some of the earlier poems, just in how they sound and how he's using uh, language and how he's using rhythm here. Um, there's a lot of iambic heptameter, seven-beat iambic lines. Um, the Nimrodel poem, for instance, is in the same meter. Um, but um, anyway... Um, Robert asked, what's the technique with the three stressed monosyllables at the end of the first and last lines? Um, yeah, uh, well, the, the poetic term for that, those sort of equally stressed um, uh, stressed lines are, are, are spondy, um, but I don't get too too hung up on poetical terminology, um, but, but you hear the way that he's that he's altering the rhythm. Um, Tolkien has such a good ear, uh, and his poems are always very interesting. Even the ones that seem really simplistic um, are very thoughtful in the in their use of, 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 of rhythm. So you don't have just a really smooth I am, uh, I am here. Um, he really invites us to linger, but you came not from the empty lands where no men are. Um, you can't really do the stress there. Um, we just have this flat where no men are that sense you know he, he through the rhythm he he conveys that sense of the the desolation of those lands that are off to the west well one thing um that i would notice about this and this is something i didn't actually really notice until this last time that i read it um uh, notice the frame of this poem that is this is not Boromir. This is not Aragorn and Legolas thinking themselves about Boromir and composing a song, right? This song is not Aragorn's lament over Boromir, right? Remember what he says right before this, right? How do you remember how he uh, how he sort of segues into the poem, right? Um, they will look for him in the, uh, from the White Tower, he said, but he will not return from mountain or from sea. Then slowly he began to sing. They will look for him from the White Tower. The point of view, the perspective of this poem is not Aragorn. It's Gondor's, right? He is singing a lament for Boromir on behalf of Minas Tirith from the point of view of Minas Tirith and the people of Gondor. Not from his own point of view, right? Um, he is sort of projecting... He's singing the lament that the people in Minas Tirith don't have the opportunity to sing, right? Um, and, of course, the subject of the poem is about their wishing they did know, right? And they're trying to gain information. Uh, and the the winds coming in from the four, or, excuse me, the three corners uh, of the world to convey uh, the news and them seeking to, to, to find... Um, what they can learn about it. Um, but you'll notice, this. to me, the west wind comes walking um, through Rohan over Fenin Field where the long grass grows, the west wind comes walking, and about the walls it goes. Um, now, one thing 
couple things that I noticed about this line. One is, doesn't that start to sound like an alliterative half line? But never let me not get distracted. Um, West Wind. Now, we're reading Tolkien, right? Um, <laughs> I, hope, I hope there are no doubts about that in anybody's mind. Now, what are we thinking about with the West Wind? Right? What I mean, West. We have associations with the West Wind, right? Um, and normally, they're associated. You know, the the the, the wind from the West. Um, it is. You know, Seth says it is associated with spring. It's. I mean, traditionally, uh, you know, in continental mythology, the West Wind is associated with 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 spring and gentleness and things. Um, but yeah, Rob says West Wind seems to be. Should we be thinking about Valinor? I think we should be thinking about Valinor. Um, Brandon, excellent point. Uh, the only other time we hear from the West Wind is the cold chill that blows away Saruman's spirit at the end of the Return of the King. Yeah, that's a wind from the West too, isn't it? Um, and that seems to be, uh, at least figuratively, a wind from the capital W West. Um, uh, what news from the West? Okay, that's a big question. Again, the West is a is a is a charged concept in Tolkien's world, except you'll notice not in the stanza. Um, the, our theoretical or, or our imagined people of Gondor are not consulting the capital W West Wind, right? Um, they're not looking to the West in the way that Faramir looks to the West, you know, in his little you know pre dinner pseudo prayer ceremony right um he uh he is not looking to you know Numenor that was and elven elven home that is and um you know and and that which lies beyond and shall ever be that's not the west that we're talking about here the only west that is discussed that is relevant in this poem is just those western stretches of middle earth which are now desolate mostly because you know holland is gone and arnor is gone and um now it's just empty lands where no men are. Um, conspicuously different from the capital W West. Um, that is to say, this poem, the point of view of this poem is circumscribed within Middle-earth. This is, oh, this is only a Middle-earth poem. They start off looking to the West because that's the way he left. right? He, he, he set out West. So they're looking first to the West. But they're not looking to the West, capital W in the bigger sense. There's no hope here. That Estelle, that higher hope, um, that hope that Sam learns looking up at the stars from Mordor, um, that hope that Aragorn um, so eloquently speaks of on his deathbed in Appendix A. Um, there's... We don't see that hope. This is a purely terrestrial point of view. Um... And we don't see any further than those desolate, empty lands where no men are. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Okay, let's get through the poem. Stanza two. Legolas picks up. From the mouths of the sea the south wind flies, from the sand hills and the stones, the wailing of the gulls it bears, and at the gate it moans. Notice, by the way, the difference in the sound there. Notice how um, how regular and rapid these lines are, again, compared to the empty lands where no men are. Um, 
from the mouths of the sea, the south wind flies from the sand hills and the stones. It's not perfectly regular iams in the sense of having every single syllable alternate, um, such as, for instance, the perfectly, uh, I, the, just like the most classical, per, I used to use this uh, line as an illustration to introductory English students of how I, the iambic meter works, uh, that line from Nimrodel. Um, and cursed the faithless ship that bore him far from Nimrodel. Uh, absolutely perfect 14-syllable iambic pattern. Um, we don't get that here. We get, we get variations, some extra syllables thrown in, but we don't have those, those periods of flatness or real disruption in the meter. The wailing of the gulls it bears and at the gate it moans. What news from the south, O sighing wind, do you bring to me at eve? Where now is Boromir the fair? He tarries, and I grieve. Ask not of me where he doth dwell, so many bones there lie, on the white shores and the dark shores under the stormy sky, so many have passed down Anduin to find the flowing sea. Ask of the north wind news of them the north wind sends to me. O Boromir, beyond the gate the seaward road runs south, but you came not with the wailing gulls from the grey sea's mouth. Notice how he does it again. From the, with the wailing gulls from the grey sea's mouth. At the end of the stanza. Um, now notice the shift in the last two lines there with O Boromir. We're now once again in the voice of the people of Gondor. Right, Those four lines there... Um, you know, we have this dialogue between the people of Gondor and this and the South Wind, right? So the South Wind is what is speaking there. Ask not of me where he doth dwell. Again, I'm struck by sort of a similar thing as in that first stanza. The sea, you know, Aragorn, or not Aragorn, sorry, Legolas. Does all like when he's thinking of the sea later on, and you know, the South Wind going down to the sea. You know, he he he. he he, you know, he's talking about Lebenin, the you know the the land in the south where they came from. This is in the, in the Return of the King, right? And he like bursts into a whole spontaneous poem to the sea, to the sea. Uh, but no, um, what does he say about the sea? What does the south wind say? The south wind that comes across the sea. We have the west wind, which we just talked about desolate lands where no men are, um, and Boromir's not there. And now we have the south, the the sea, the wind from the south, which is coming from the mouths of the Anduin, where the elves of Lorien set sail, as Legos was just explaining to us a little while back. And what does he talk about? Um, hey, don't ask me. There's so many bones down here, I can't keep them separated, right? I mean, what do you associate with the sea? Mm, death, actually. Not escape, as the elves might conceivably do. Um, not as a passage to what lies beyond, um, as a destination um, for the earthly remains of people. Again, it's a very earthly remains kind of poem, right? It's really focused on terrestrial things. It's really focused on stuff of Middle-earth. Um, maybe the soul goes somewhere else afterwards, but this stanza is concerned, just as there might be something off to the west beyond those empty lands, um, but the song isn't really thinking about them. Um, the soul might go somewhere after the bones are being tumbled about in the sea, but the south wind doesn't talk about that, right? Doesn't even seem actually all that interested in it. Um, 
So many have passed down Anduin to find the flowing sea. Ask of the north wind, news of them the north wind sends to me. Right, The north wind is in the business of sending people down to the sea, presumably to uh, join the rest of those bones on the white shores and the dark shores under the stormy sky. It's a very, very bleak uh, idea of the sea. Again, there's no Estelle here. There's no hope here. Um, it, and, and again, I find that I find that uh, I find that really striking. Now, third stanza. We're skipping right over Gimli and going back to to, to Aragorn. From the gate of kings the north wind rides, and past the roaring falls, and clear and cold about the tower its loud horn calls. Its loud horn calls. Another of those spondaic lines. Um, what news from the north, O mighty wind, do you bring to me today? What news of Boromir the bold, for he is long away? Beneath Amon Hen I heard his cry, there many foes he fought. His cloven shield, his broken sword, they to the water brought. His head so proud, his face so fair, his limbs they laid to rest. And Rauros, golden Rauros falls, bore him upon its breast. O Boromir, the tower of guard, shall ever northward gaze to Rauros, golden Rauros falls, until the end of days. Ah, uh, there's no Estelle here either, really, right? Um, the note, the last note of this song, it's beautiful. Even with the emphasizing the color to Rauros, golden Rauros falls, right? Um, there were other two-syllable words he could have used there, right? But he emphasizes the majesty, the beauty of the falls themselves. We're going to look towards them, and looking at the majestic and beautiful falls of Rauros, we will remember you, Boromir. But we're going to keep looking up at that place where you died, right? Um, that's what we will re until the end of days we're going to be looking at the place where Boromir died um, and even the the um, the final emphasis here the final emphasis of the of the north wind um, he gives a he gives a line to his heroic deeds right um, okay half a line there are many foes he fought okay um, then I get a whole line about his funeral, his cloven shield, his broken sword, they to the water brought, though half of that line is dominated by images of his of his defeat, right? Uh, I mean, it, he his sword broke, his shield was cloven. Um, Boromir was killed, he fell in battle. He's a hero, he's awesome, um, but he's fallen. Um, you know, this is not just—he didn't just—he didn't die of old age. Um, he didn't die of a tragic illness. Um, he was a hero, and he, he fell in battle. Um, and, and again, that's a fine thing. Uh, that's that's how a warrior should die. Um, uh, but again, it's all it, the, the emphasis is not on his victory, um, not on his conquering in that more simple sense, um, but on the loss, um, on these fragments, on these remnants. His head so proud, his face so fair, his limbs they laid to rest. His limbs they laid to rest. Um, and Rauros, golden Rauros falls, bore him upon its breast. The tenderness of that line, I think, is the most beautiful. Bore him upon his breast. Um, uh, but, you know, 
I, I sort of think you know, sort of the sort of two things that this sort of suggests to me. One is um, the fact that Aragorn initiated this. Legolas is apparently playing along, but this was Aragorn's poem first and last, uh, and his concept. Um, and so, on the one hand, <clears throat> you know, one is tempted to ask. This poem isn't really a Boromir story. It's kind of a Gondor story, right? <clears throat> it gives us a glimpse of Gondor as it currently stands. Remember Faramir's talk about how um, Gondor is in decline, right? How they've become middlemen, how they're, they're no longer, they no longer deserve to be called high, right? Um, how they have begun to um, sort of think like, you know, the the... the, the the lesser men, to use Tolkien's language there, that, that dwell around them, um, not like the the people of Numenor. This song illustrates that, right? Um, the Numenorians, they had their issues, right? Uh, they certainly developed their issues over time. Um, but at least when they were talking about the West, it wasn't just that piece of terrain which happens to lie to the West of us. Right, they're not just thinking about their own domains, um, which they seem to be. When they're talking about the West, right? Those places which were under our sway and which are now desolate. Notice even here in this third stanza, from the gate of kings, the North Wind rides. Actually, the North Wind comes from much further away than the Argonoth, but we only think about the Argonoth because we're Gondor, right? <laughs> um, so it's 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 kind of narrow, and in a sense shallow and focused on itself, and it has lost its place. It has lost its sense of itself. It has lost those things which, you know, um, Gandalf later in The Return of the King will say that Aragorn um, is going to, to, to you know, keep the memory alive of the age that has passed. Sam is going to be doing the same thing up in the Shire, right? Gondor, right now, not doing that. And we see that, I think, illustrated in this song. Now, um, at the same time, though, this is a Gondor story. It's also kind of an Aragorn story, right? This is Aragorn's fictional recreation of what Gondor would say. So, does it tell us something about Gondor? Yeah, I think so. But it also tells us something about what Aragorn thinks about Gondor, right? Um, And sort of his understanding of where Gondor stands. And in a sense, Boromir... um, stands for is is almost like a representative of that modern Gondor, right? Boromir is like the best example of the decline, you know, of of of, of Gondor in decline. Um, whereas Faramir is different. Faramir is a throwback, right? Boromir wasn't a farback. Uh, it was. I say it again. Boromir wasn't a throwback to the Numenorians. Faramir is a throwback to the Numenorians. He's different uh, from Boromir. Um, and so we have that perspective, I think, illustrated in this poem. And, and there's a kind of irony to it, because it's, it's celebrating like its own funeral, <laughs> in a sense. Um, but anyway, I'm... Uh, um, um, I should probably move on. But that was fun. And let me confess something. Uh, 
this is one of the reasons I love teaching so much. I didn't know I was going to say half of that. Um, uh, that this is what I, I, you know, I love talking about Tolkien's poems so much because once you really get started, you know, kind of immersing yourself in them, you you sort of come to see all these things uh, that you didn't see before. And it's really fun when that happens. Um, I should probably not tell you that and try to like take credit for like a really like thoughtfully planned out lecture, but. Um, but actually, uh, a lot of that it, it is it just it's stuff that kind of opens to you when you when you look at the poems. This is why you uh, you always need to read the poems clearly. Now, I want to move on um, to make at least a gesture at my second topic, and that is um, looking at Aragorn's choosing, sort of thinking about you know Boromir's sacrifice and his uh, his. Um, well, his failure to save Merry and Pippin, but in doing so, his saving of himself. I'm going to look at Aragorn's choice. Aragorn is beating himself up in this first chapter. Um, you give the choice to an ill chooser, he says. You know, it, 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 you know, it, alas, you know, everything I do this day goes amiss. Um, Aragorn's having a bad day. I want to look at Aragorn's bad day um, and try to see if we can understand a, a little bit more uh, the principles that underlie these things. So, here is... Aragorn's first bad choice. Well, in this chapter, anyway. Arguably, he made some at the end of uh, The Fellowship of the Ring, too, but Aragorn hesitated. There you go. Right there. We've already got a, we've already, we've already got a problem. He desired to go to the high seat himself, hoping to see there something that would guide him in his perplexities, but time was pressing. Remember the context now. The context, it's like the second paragraph of the book, but but there is still context. He has been, remember, at the very end of, of the Breaking of the Fellowship, at the end of the, the, the Fellowship of the Ring, he and Sam, he overtakes Sam, and he and Sam are going together, and they're following Frodo's footsteps, and he, he, he outpaces Sam. Right, uh, he, And Sam can't keep up, and that's when Sam stops and says, well, hang on a second, right? Um, Use your use your head, um, and figures out and goes back. Aragorn has just found Frodo's prints, footprints, and has just discovered Frodo did come up this way. Right? It's as my heart guessed. He said Frodo came this way, but he also sees Frodo came back. Right? So he knows for he is one hundred percent sure that Frodo is not up on Amonhen. Right? Um, but he wants to go. Th- so if he goes up to Amonhen. He's going to be losing time, right? Uh, he he he's 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 going to only decrease his chances of finding Frodo, and uh, and 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 maybe other bad things will happen. Who knows? Um, time was pressing. Suddenly, he leaped forward and ran to the summit, across the great flagstones, and up the steps. Aragorn has made his choice, right? Okay, I can go right after Frodo because um, I got his trail right here, or I can go the opposite direction that I know Frodo to be going in because I really want to sit on Amonhen and look, ra- and look around. And that's what he decides to do. Then, sitting in the high seat, he looked out. But the sun seemed darkened, and the world dim and remote. He turned from the north back again to the north and saw nothing save the distant hills, unless it were that far away he could see again a great bird like an eagle high in the air, descending slowly in wide circles down towards the earth. What does he see? Uh, nothing, right? Um, he, he, he really would like to go... I mean, notice in that first sentence, uh, the second sentence there. He desired to go to the high seat himself. Why? 
hoping to see there something that would guide him in his perplexities. Now, what does that mean, exactly? Um, in context, one is tempted to say, because, like, it's the seat of seeing, so obviously the most efficient way to find somebody is to go to the seat of seeing, right? I mean, okay, if you've got, uh, you've got somebody's trail, sure, but if you've got, like, the magic telescope right over there, um, and you could use just, why not go out a little bit out of your way, use the magic telescope, find Frodo, and then you can find him more efficiently. Uh, really, this is a, that's not what he's doing, right? Um, we see, first of all, if it was what he was doing, he fails, because he doesn't see Frodo from up there, but, but I don't think that's the, would guide him in his perplexities. His perplexities that he needs guiding in are not, where's Frodo? He knows where Frodo is. That way. Right? He just saw the prince. So Sam, without seeing the prince, has figured out where Frodo is going, and he turns around immediately and hightails it back after Frodo. Aragorn also knows. And presumably, given how much faster he runs than Sam, as we've already seen, had he turned around at this moment when he hesitates and gone back, maybe he'd have caught Frodo too. But he doesn't. Why doesn't he? Because he's going to go up to try to get guidance in his perplexities. Plural. Plural perplexities. Where's Frodo is a single perplexity, and I don't even think it's it's among the perplexities that he's talking about. Remember, Aragorn is at this time divided. What does he do? Right? What's What should he do? He is deeply divided in his mind. He really, really, really wants to go to Minas Tirith. He wants to return to Gondor. He feels that the the dream, Faramir's dream, which Boromir also had once, was a summons. Right? He's supposed to go down to Gondor. That's his job. Um, Now is the time. It's time for the king to return. The the sword that was broken has been forged again. It's time for the sword of Elendil to return and help to deliver Minas Tirith. He's all about that. Except he's got to... He can't just abandon Frodo, though, right? You know, because then again, you've got the same potential problem, right, that we were talking about with Boromir and with Merry and Pippin before. Right? If you say, oh, let me do the best thing for the city, right, and abandon you, it's not going to work, right? So he's got perplexities, right? What, is he, what do you do? Um, if How does he navigate this for his own self, right? What does he do? Does the whole company go... What do you do with Boromir? He's got a bunch of perplexities, right? So he's hoping to, for guidance. He wants to, lo- to know what is best to do. So ironically, his problems come in here when he tries to solve his problems. <laughs> that is, when he tries to get around, when he tries to, to, to use this route to see clearly what he should do, that's when he starts screwing up what he should do, right? Um, so that's one thing that I think is kind of interesting here. Even as he gazed, his quick ears caught sounds in the woodlands below, on the west side of the river. He stiffened. There were cries, and among them, to his horror, he could distinguish the harsh voices of orcs. Then suddenly, with a deep-throated call, a great horn blew, and the blasts of it smote the hills and echoed in the hollows, rising in a mighty shout above the roaring of the falls. The horn of Boromir, he cried, he is in need. He sprang down the steps and away, leaping down the path. Alas, an ill fate is on me this day, and all that I do goes amiss. Where is Sam? He's failed Sam, too. He's failed Frodo. He's failed Boromir. He's failed Sam. He's probably failed Marion Pippin, because he knows he sent Boromir after Marion Pippin. Um, and for what? What did he get? Nothing. He saw no case on Eagle. And, as you know, seeing an eagle, often not a bad thing, right? But 
But anyway, it didn't look like a eucatastrophe kind of evil, evil right? It, it, it just kind of... Um, it's an eagle coming down in slow circles, which again... Uh, you know, if you're into, like, ancient Greece uh, reading of oracles in the flight of birds, that's probably a good sign. But uh, but still, um, that's um, that's pretty... Uh, low yield, I would say, in his investment of time. Especially since he clearly, later on, is blaming himself for not being there with Boromir. There's bitterness in the words that he gives, that he says to, to, to Gimli and Legolas when they come in and they see him crouched over Boromir and they say, we fear you've taken deadly hurt, right? Oh man, are, are, Aragorn, are you mortally wounded? And Aragorn says with some bitterness, I'm unscathed, for I wasn't here, right? Um, there's that sense of, I'm not mortally wounded, but I should be. Right, if I weren't such a git, I would be mortally wounded right now. Um, uh, had I not been trying to solve my own problems and figure out the answer to my own, you know, personal dilemmas, if I hadn't been putting that before doing the task which was obviously before me, um, then yeah, I'd have been here too to sacrifice myself right along with Boromir. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sharon points out that uh, um, it's, too, it's too bad there's not a moth around that Aragorn could have sent a message uh, to the eagle. Um, certainly, certainly true. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Susan asks, is it the eagle bringing Gandalf uh, to, to Rohan? I don't think so. He describes... Um, he, Gandalf, later on, describes uh, you know, Gwaihir as being... Basically, he's like being Gandalf's scout right now. Um, so he may well be reporting back to Gandalf um, at this point, but um, I think Gandalf has already, uh, is already, uh, has already landed at this point. Um, yeah, Daniel, again, you're, that's, it's a fascinating point of contrast, the fact that... <clears throat> uh, not only does film one end with the death of Boromir, but Aragorn gets a noble, uh, heroical defense of Boromir. Right? He does come in in time to join it. He doesn't succeed in saving Merry and Pippin, right? But he does come in uh, in time to have that heroic fight against the, the orc that's going to summarily dispatch Boromir. Um, and he doesn't really accomplish too much either, except other than giving Boromir the opportunity to deliver his last very moving speech. But, nevertheless, um, still, the fact that Aragorn is beat up and wounded and does, in fact, uh, arrive in time to do a little bit of something um, in the battle is, is, a, is, is a very significant departure. Um, though, again, one thing that I would say, that's a major shift, which I attribute to the positioning in the arc, right? This Aragorn that we're getting here in the book, this is a First, this is a chapter one Aragorn, not a not a not a last chapter Aragorn, right? Um, this is this is the this is the setup. This is this is Aragorn having messed things up. Now I say he's messed things up. What should he have done, and how? How do we know? Um, uh, why? Um, why? Um, why do we? Um, on, on what basis can we conclude whether or not this was a good or bad choice, or, or, or to say it better, on what basis do you decide to make 
should you be deciding to make choices? It's not like Aragorn was succumbing to the draw of the ring or something, right? I mean, it's you know, on the on the on the on the spectrum of bad decisions, this is a really you know, small deal, right? I mean, there are so many people who make many more, you know, with like, uh, you know, if you've got this spectrum with like Turin Turambar on one end of the spectrum of the catastrophic bad decision scale, right? I mean, uh, um, if you, uh, yeah, so if we were doing, if we were thinking about this in physics terms, we should invent a unit of badness of decision making, and if we did, it would definitely be the Turin, right? How many Turins uh, w- would we measure <laughs> this bad decision? Uh, and clearly, Aragorn's bad decision is like only a few micro Turins, uh, I think, uh, at this particular moment. I mean, I think that that's really, I think that that's really clear. Um, but anyways, nevertheless, it's still it's still on the spectrum, right? Um, so. Uh, Look at look at how he talks about this, and again, I think right in the in the context of Boromir's death, um, this really this really helps us. Gimli kind of calls the question right after the after the funeral. Our choice then, said Gimli, is either to take the remaining boat and follow Frodo, or else to follow the orcs on foot. There is little hope either way. We have already lost precious hours. Little hope. Hmm. Oh, funny you should say that. Let me think, said Aragorn, and now may I make a right choice and change the evil fate of this unhappy day. He stood silent for a moment. I will follow the orcs, he said at last. I would have guided Frodo to Mordor and gone with him to the end, but if I seek him now in the wilderness, I must abandon the captives to torment and death. My heart speaks clearly at last. The fate of the bearer is in my hands no longer. The company has played its part. Yet we that remain cannot forsake our companions while we have strength left. Come, we will go now. Leave all that can be spared behind. We will press on by day and dark. Notice the way that Aragorn talks about this choice. What is the choice for him? On the one, How does he articulate the choice? That is... What is he choosing between? Because it's, it's obvious. Like, let, let me illustrate what I'm saying with with a little absurdity. Obviously, this is not a question of um, this is not a question of uh, uh, okay. Frodo's in trouble. Frodo and Sam are in trouble. Merry and Pippin are in trouble. Who's in more trouble? Who needs us more? You know, and it's certainly not like. Who do I like better, <laughs> Pippin or Frodo and Sam, right? Um, or even who's more important, Frodo and Sam or Merry and Pippin? Because that's a no-brainer under the circumstances, right? Um, no, that those aren't the terms. Any of those, none of those are the terms of the decision he's making. Um, if I seek him now in the wilderness, I must abandon the captives to torment and death. On the one hand, we've got Frodo and Sam, and they probably need help. I. I, Aragorn, have um, some skills which uh, would be useful to Frodo, right? I could probably, probably, increase his chance of success if I accompanied him. Okay. That's the one hand. But on the other hand is the certainty that Merry and Pippin are going to be abandoned to torment and death, right? Um, Ironically, they're not. Right, even if Aragorn and Legos and Gimli weren't limping along behind, 
and I'm just called their like great and heroical race across Rohan limping. Um, but anyway, if they weren't running heroically along behind, the orcs would still have been killed by Aemir, and uh, Merry and Pippin still have, would have ended up with Treebeard. Um, but that's not the point. The point is, from what he can see, uh, he doesn't know what's going to happen to Frodo, but he does know what's going to happen to Merry and Pippin. And to him, finally, this becomes a no-brainer. And you'll notice, what is the premise upon which it becomes a no-brainer? This is not a question of pragmatics, right? Okay, what's going to give us, us speaking broadly, like the good guys, right? What's going to most increase the chances of the good guys succeeding? Going with Frodo. No-brainer, right? That would seem to be, I mean, if you're, that's, that's obviously how that calculus works. Um, you, uh, you, so, I, again, you could even turn the argument around and say, um, Aragorn, this is a stupid idea, right? Like, okay, again, everybody loves Merry and Pippin, but come on now, right? You know, eyes on the prize here, Aragorn, right? You know, like, you know, you can't make an up without breaking a few eggs. Like, I'm sorry, Merry and Pippin, not essential personnel. We all like them, but let them go, right? Go after Frodo, man. That's what this is all about. Anyway, nobody's more important than Frodo. Let them go. Sacrifice them for the sake of the quest. No. Absolutely not. That would be the catastrophically wrong decision. And Aragorn's heart speaks clearly to him at last. This is what he's supposed to do. It would obviously be wrong to abandon Merry and Pippin. Therefore, that can't be what he's supposed to do. Right? Therefore, he concludes, the fate of the bearer is in my hands no longer. Guess what he got? Oh, something to guide him in his perplexities. Gosh, he didn't find it up on Ammon Hen. Instead... He found it here um, in his choice now. Um, so and so anyway, um, he now has a guide to his perplexities. But again, notice the premise. Notice the principles that are going to this. It's it's certainly it's like the opposite of pragmatic principles. What is the principle? Fellowship, right? Um, that you. It's a no-brainer, right? You don't sacrifice the lives and the good of some for the greater good. You preserve, the, you know, when, when, when your choice is between doing something that you hope is going to, you know, kind of work out in the big picture in the long term or helping somebody who needs you right there that you're staring right at, or at least at whose trail you're staring, um, th- you help the people who need help right there, especially, of course, those that are in your company, those that are in your fellowship. You don't abandon your companions. Um, um, yeah, as Kay points out, he, he, he chooses neither Gondor nor the quest. Yeah, that's right. Um, you're right, Kay. I've been sort of speaking of it like it's a, um, like it's a, 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 you know, a two variable question. It's not. It's, a, there's a, there's a, there, there are three Holes here to that decision that he's making. Um, he doesn't state it explicitly here, but it's certainly implicit from the charge that Boromir laid upon him. He's got to get himself to Minas Tirith, and guess where he's going? The opposite direction. Of, it's not exactly opposite, but he's not going to Minas Tirith. Um, he is turning his back on Minas Tirith and heading north again, across Rohan. Um, so, that is um so you're right, Kay. He is he is he is turning away um, from. Okay, so he he he's got a he's got, obviously got a duty to the quest. 
Um, and he's the guy, you know, he's the he's the leader of the company. So, you know, he's got that. Now he's got, I mean, he was sufficiently uh, uh, committed to the whole Minas Tirith uh, defense concept anyway. But now the dying Boromir has laid the charge upon him to defend Minas Tirith. And now you've got these two random and really quite globally insignificant little hobbits um, who have been captured by orcs. Everything else aside, that's obviously what's important in this moment. And again, it's like Boromir's choice. Um, In a sense, he is... This isn't... Situations are so different that this isn't really fair at all. What what I'm wanting to say is, in a sense, he is he is conquering like Boromir conquered. He is, his choice is similar to Boromir's choice, um, and for both of them, it is the right choice. And it's not just the right choice for them; both of them make the right choice. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Emily asks a great question. Do I think that if he had turned back for Frodo earlier, Aragorn's choice here would have been different? It's, I, I, it's an interesting question, Emily. Of course, theoretically impossible to answer. Um, would Aragorn have caught Frodo? And if he had, what would have happened? Would he have gone with him? Um, what would Aragorn have done then? Had he been, you know... Um, on the boat across the river when he heard the horn going off. Um, maybe he wouldn't have. I guess Frodo and Sam didn't really hear the horn. Um, did they? I don't think they heard the horn. Um, but uh, no, no, they didn't, because when Faramir talks about the horn, Frodo's not like, oh yeah, I heard the horn. I wonder what that was. Um, so I, don't think, I, don't, I don't think they did. But anyway, getting distracted. The point is, um, you know, would that have been you know, a clear choice for him, the right thing for him to do. Would the whole situation have been different? I don't know. I don't know. Tom, thank you. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, this is Turin and Finduilas all over again. All over again. And Turin, of course, making making the absolutely wrong choice. Um, no, I'm get, I've got the captives right here, uh, and here's Finduilas, the elf maiden who loves me, who's like crying out to me as she goes by. Um, no, I, I'm going to leave them, and I'm going to go because it's my family, right? And I have a duty. I'm supposed to be the lord up there, and I've abandoned them, and I've abandoned my family, and I'm awful, so i gotta go to, I got a clear duty to go do that. No, you didn't, Turin. Um, you just, you just did. Uh, uh, that's a. So, are Turin's worst decision? Would they be? Would they be a one? On the scale, I'm trying to figure out the scale of the the Turin scale of bad, of poor decision making. Uh, would Turin's decision be by decisions be by definition a one point on the Turin scale, but I see some of Turin's decision are higher on the Turin ranking than others, but that's a pretty high one. I think that might be a, a something like a 5.0. I'm not sure. But anyway. But anyway, Tom, you're exactly right. Um, both Boromir and Aragorn um, pass the Finduilas test. Um, they do exactly what Turin fails to do. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, Rachel says this is a great example of the end not justifying the means. Exactly, Rachel. That's exactly what I was thinking and saying very poorly. Very good. If if in his quest to save the world, he loses his loyalty and his honor, uh, then the world is lost anyway. Um, yeah, and... But also, Rachel, I would add, then the world is probably not going to be saved. He talks a lot here about fate um, in these passages. Um, Aragorn often has that sort of fatalism about him. Aragorn clearly believes in fate. He believes that there is some kind of higher power operating things, that there are things that are supposed to happen or things that he is supposed to do. Um, he, he, he talks like that on numerous occasions. Um, and if you act in the way that you're supposed to, if you make the right kind of choice, it works out. It doesn't mean it's always best for you. Ask Boromir, right? Didn't work out for him in the short term, <laughs> right? Um, <clears throat> didn't work out for him in the sense of a long-term prosperity, um, but he did what he was supposed to do. Um, and, and it is his, and it's the saving of him, right? Um, but he, um, but Aragorn. You know, and we get this whole. You know, this is coming back to, and I'll talk about this more later, um, next class when we talk about chapters four and five. <clears throat> Gandalf's talk about this kind of thing. Um, no, uh, you know, it's it's so it's not like he is personally prospered by this choice that because he's doing what he's supposed to do, but because he has made the right choice, he ends up being in just the place that he is supposed to be in in order to play the next part that he has to play. Um, uh, Chris asks, is this because he is a man foresighted? Well, Chris, I'm tempted to turn that around. Is he a man foresighted because of this? Uh, I would I would actually be more tempted to say. Um, yeah. Yeah, good. Kay says he does say if he chooses well, it may change the evil fate of this unhappy day. Um, yes. Yes, I agree. He's using the word fate in a different sense there. I don't mean fate in the sense of... Um, Determinism. I don't because I don't. I don't mean that he he is a fatalist. That was a poor choice of words. I don't mean to suggest that Aragorn believes that his own choices don't matter. Right? You know, something. There's somebody else is writing this script, and it doesn't really matter what we do because what's going to happen is going to happen. Um, remember Galadriel's words when um, she's asked what she would like, and she says that what sh- that what should be shall be. Which implies that in Galadriel's mind, it is not a given that what should be, shall be. Sometimes what shall be, sometimes what is, is not what should be. Um, But, so that's from Galadriel, apparently, on the table. Um, Aragorn clearly believes that choices matter. And so when he talks about the evil fate, um, he's not using fate in that deterministic sense. Uh, but he does have a sense of there is a, there is something that is supposed to happen. Um, there is a way things are supposed to go. There is, there is, a, there is a plot here um, that he is kind of following along with. Elrond talks in exactly the same way. Um, if I 
if I understand aright all that I have heard, I believe that this task is meant for you, Frodo, says Elrond. Uh, by whom, right? Gandalf says, in that case, you also were meant to have the ring, and that might be a comforting thought. Um, meant by whom? That's the kind of, uh, the kind of fatalism that I'm talking about. That sense that there is a script, there is a way things are supposed to go, but that doesn't mean that our own choices are irrelevant. Um, this is a very big topic, um, and I can't do anything but make vague gestures at it with my arms right now, but, um, I think it's one of the reasons why I think that Tolkien's fiction uh, does one of the most powerful uh, it is a an old doctrine of Christianity that both predestination and free will are both operative in the world that God has scripted the world, that God knows all that is going to happen and has shaped all that is going to occur. But that, while that is true, it is also true that people make choices and those choices have real consequences and there is genuine freedom of choice. Many treat that as a simple contradiction. It is a long-standing Christian doctrine that those two things are not actually necessarily in contradiction. And if you'd like to read more about this, you should read Boethius and the Consolation of Philosophy, one of my very favorite medieval books. But, um, Tolkien does, some, I think, some really wonderful things to illustrate that concept in his fiction. The idea of the existence of a fate, and yet the reality of choices. I think we see this uh, from the Ainuendole forward. But I don't want to, I don't want to uh, get too distracted on that whenever you, whenever you start talking about fate and free will you can know that things are going uh, directly awry um, but recall I was talking about um, I was talking about uh, uh, Elrond and let me end with this this isn't where I had hoped to get to but I didn't do as bad as I thought um Remember from the Fellowship of the Ring. This is Merry and Pippin being chosen for the company. We want to go with Frodo. That is because you do not understand and cannot imagine what lies beha- what lies ahead, says Elrond. Neither does Frodo, said Gandalf, unexpectedly supporting Pippin. Nor do any of us see clearly. It is true that if these hobbits understood the danger, they would not dare to go. But they would still wish to go, or wish that they dared, and be shamed and unhappy. I think, Elrond, that in this matter it would be well to trust rather to their friendship than to great wisdom. Even if you choose for us an elf lord such as Glorfindel, he could not storm the dark tower, nor open the road to the fire by the power that is in him. This is a statement by Gandalf which is a little bit hard to defend in many ways, right? Okay, yeah. Given Glorfindel couldn't take down Sauron solo, but can you really establish the case that they're worse off with Gorfindel than, than uh, without him? Right? Okay, again, given. He can't, you know, open a road to the fire. He's not going to make it trivial, right? But he increases the odds, maybe a little bit, right? Um, seriously, Gandalf, 
Like, that doesn't make any sense at all. He can't do it all by himself, and so therefore there's no point even sending him. Hang on, I'm not tracking with you there, right? And similarly, notice what he said right right before there. That sort of the, I, it would be well to trust. It's a mind-blowing statement when you think about it. It would be well to trust rather to their friendship than to great wisdom. So we're, we're balancing two things. On the one hand, we've got their friendship. On the other hand, we've got wisdom. He's not saying, I think it would be wise to trust to their friendship. No, he's saying, you've got trusting to their friendship over here, and you've got wisdom over there, <laughs> way over there. You know, you know what I like about this plan, Elrond? I like the fact that it is not wise. I like the fact that this is a dumb idea. I like the fact that anybody would look at this and say, this is the most foolish choice we could possibly have made. Um, we could, we could get, oh, we could, heck, we've got two spots left open. We get two Gorfindels, right? Uh, we, uh, we, okay, there aren't two Gorfindels. But we'll get one Gorfindel and one, you know, like, you know, his his understudy. And... Um, you know, so we'll get we'll get we'll get we'll get Glorfindel and his little elven San- Sancho Panza, and we'll be so much better off. Or on the other hand, we could go with these two underage hobbits with no relevant skills and who really have nothing to contribute to this party whatsoever. I love this plan, says Gandalf. Why? What is the only thing in the favor of that plan? Their friendship, back back to fellowship again, right? They desire to stick to Frodo. That weighs in the scale. That's heavy in the scales, right? They are committed to him. Um, they are. They get that. They get already what Boromir and Aragorn are going to get in Chapter 1 of The Two Towers, right? Um, that is what qualifies Merry and Pippin for this trip. And then, of course, it turns out that what they... Uh, at least the first steps of what they accomplish is not acts themselves of loyalty, like not, not acts of their own loyalty, but being the occasion of loyalty in others, right? Um, uh, it's a good thing we brought them along. Uh, Gandalf ref- re- reflects smugly in chapter 5 of book 3. Such a good thing that Elrond uh, gave in to me and let us bring Merry and Pippin along. Right, um, uh, he's, he gets even more snug about that in the Return of the King, but uh, he keeps bringing it up. He just can't let it go that he uh, that he that he knew better than Elrond there. But um, but anyway, again, what? How does it? What it turns out because again, when the choice is between fellowship and self sacrifice versus strategy, <laughs> right? Versus you know these these. Conve- what looks like the obvious thing again, just like it looks like the obvious thing. You've got Aragorn, you know, the greatest, uh, the greatest traveler and you know, and and huntsman of the age, right? I mean, those all those accolades that that uh, that Gandalf is 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 showering on Aragorn back in the Fellowship of the Ring. Well, um, having him along with Frodo and Sam probably increases their odds, right? Like it's he's 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 going to be an asset, right? Um, so clearly, if Aragorn's going to make a choice, what he needs to do is maximize the chance of success and follow... Over. Again, no. No, that's not. It's a very similar kind of choice. The choice that... you know, So, uh, the choice of, do we go with Glorfindel uh, plus one, or do we go with uh, Merry and Pippin? 
it's quite not not for the same reasons, right? Mary and Pippin not yet captured, but uh, but again, fellowship, friendship, uh, that kind of loyalty and sacrifice over um, over strategy. I want to say wisdom is what Gandalf opposes to it, um, which is which is fascinating. Um, uh, yeah, good. Um, yeah. Yeah, good, good. Um, okay, okay. Um, I should probably go because I meant to go twenty minutes ago. Um, so I should, I should, I should let you go, and we'll come, we'll come back to some of this next time. Um, we will. Yeah, I haven't decided what I'll what I'll lump in, but um, notice one direction I was going to go from here. Notice what we get in chapter three after this, right? Chapter one and two with this with this, what I think, really prominent focus on these kinds of decisions, on these, these, uh, on these kinds of, you know, the, the kind of moral um, uh, outcomes, not the right word, uh, the kind of moral deliberations that Aragorn does, especially, um, and that Boromir has done, in a sense, um, here in these first two chapters. And then we get the orcs in chapter three. And the, the contrast is 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 very clear. I think we'll begin next time by looking briefly um, at a sort of a glimpse of that contrast. And then we will go on next week, uh, next week, on Thursday's class, we will talk about chapter four and chapter five. And what I want to focus on, um, what I want you really to be thinking about, we've got two events um, in that, in those two chapters. We have the meeting with Treebeard and the meeting with Gandalf. Um, And both of those two, the thing that, you know, when I sort of think about those two chapters, um, one of the things that really strikes me more than, um, more than almost anywhere else in the two towers, certainly in book three, this is the moment when we get, we see Tolkien doing myth-making. Um, the mythic implications of Treebeard and who he is and what he is, and of Gandalf returning um, are enormous. I want to look at what Tolkien does, and I want to compare and contrast those two things as well. Um, it's easy to kind of wave your hands at Tolkien and say mythic stuff all over the place. But I want to, I want to think about it. I want to think a little bit more about the making of myth um, that we can see happening in chapters 4 and 5. Um, uh, uh, one last... Um, um, uh, oh, Kay asks a good question. She says, uh, would it be more convenient for you if we send topic thoughts to you bef- <clears throat> before the session so we don't have to field them on the air? Uh, go ahead and do that if you like. I'm happy to uh, take those. I can sort of take some of those things into into account in advance. Um, it is, Kay, kind of hard to multitask. is why I can't promise to be able to read through everything that people send. Um, uh, I mean, I know ideas come up in the moment. Is that ideas come up for me in the moment, too. So, you know, don't it's fine. I'm, I, I really like um, talking about this stuff, but uh, uh, but anyway, um, but if you do want to send me an email in advance, that's fine. Um, 
One thing, I, of course, I want to talk about, this is the first of our Mythgard Academy classes. Uh, you guys know we're doing the Indiegogo campaign, uh, and I just wanted to say, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but we just we just met our goal today, like uh, about an hour before class started. We crossed over the $10,000 threshold. I'm really excited about that. Uh, thank you guys for your support so much. It's been really awesome. Now, here's the plan. Um, the plan is, I want to go way past the goal, because here's, 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 here's what, what, what we can do. Um, the you know the way I'm doing it over these four weeks, you know, we're doing two class sessions a week. I think it'd be awesome if we were able to do these classes like pretty much year round. Um, we got some work to do to be able to get to there. Um, uh, running classes like even classes like this, we can we want to make as much as we can available for free, but it's hard. It takes a lot of people's time. It takes it takes you know our own resources. You know we're uh, you know, paying for the interfaces and again, and, and a lot of time, um, and a lot of time that we're taking away f- from you know other things that we also need to be doing. And it's one of the things that for me was really hard because I've always wanted to be focusing on stuff like this. You know, I I, I want to do more with people. I want to do more free stuff, um, but people keep telling me that I have to choose wisdom instead of that. Uh, that I have to uh, instead um, focus on the you know because there are lots of things with establishing you know Mythgard and. Signum University that really need to be done. Um, this is why we decided to do the Indiegogo campaign, because you know we wanted to to basically uh, work this out with people to say you know hey look if you guys can support what we're doing you know if if you if you like the idea of what we're doing through MythGuard of trying to bring this kind of scholarship and make it available to people you can, you know to to make deb- degree programs available um, with. Um, uh, with with a really uh, uh, all star cast, I'm not talking about myself. Uh, Dr. Shippian, Dr. Flieger, and Dr. Sturgis, all three of whom are teaching classes at Mythgard this semester. These are some of the greatest scholars in the world. Uh, I mean, like in the history of Tolkien studies, that are that are teaching classes at Mythgard right now. I'm, it is so exciting um, for people to get the chance to study with these people, um, and, uh, uh, and you know, for tuition rates that are as low as I can possibly make them. Um, but at the same time, you know, we, we want to do more. We want to do more free classes and stuff. We, we would like to be able to make more stuff accessible to people. But, you know, we can't... There's a limit to how much we can do. So so we need help. So anyway, so that's why, we're, that's why you know, we're doing the fundraising campaign. That's, uh, you know, why basically the more support we get from people, the more we're able to do. Um, and so I would really love to be able to do lots and lots lots more so um definitely uh you know again if you enjoyed this class tell people about it again it's it's you know we had uh, about 75 people here tonight that was awesome um you know we uh, uh we could potentially uh 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 have uh, a good deal more, um, but anyway, I just want, I just wanted to encourage you. Tell people about the Indiegogo campaign. You know, I would love to see a lot of people involved. Um, you know, if you make a twenty-five dollar donation, you get to vote on you know what classes we do, and I really mean that. That's open. I would, lo- you know, of course, I have my own. I have my own little, um, uh, you know, like my own little private plan for classes I would really love to do. But I don't want to just do the stuff that I'm interested in. I really want to uh, to make this an opportunity. Um, uh, for uh, for people to uh, for for people to um, 
to 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 really shape this, um, and uh, you know, for us to be really serving what 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 people are interested in doing. Um, yes, Brandon, even Harry Potter. I actually quite like Harry Potter. I mean, I, I it's hard because. Yeah, I won't get into it, but I actually do. I, I I really like Harry Potter. I've read the entire Harry Potter series four times through at least. Uh, Brandon, a couple of the books, uh, a couple times more than that. Um, really like it. But yeah, absolutely, we could talk about Harry Potter, or or you could talk about Harry Potter with somebody who knows even more about it than I do. Potentially, doesn't have to just be me teaching these classes. By the way. Um, so anyway, um, Sean was asking where you can donate, and can you donate time and effort? Yeah, uh, the uh, it's on Indiegogo, so if you go to Indiegogo.com, um, I've posted links to it all a bunch of places. If you go to Mythgard.org, um, M-Y-T-H-G-A-R-D.org, you'll find links to the Indiegogo campaign, and you can, you can get to it there. Um, I've been posting it in a bunch of other places, too. But anyway, spread the word, um, and, uh, and we'll... Uh, We'll get. Cursa asks, "Please, no Twilight." <laughs> if, 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 uh, if heavens preserve me, that wins an election, I'll do it. I'll do it. But, uh, um, but I will. Uh, <laughs> Whew. Um, anyway, um, yeah, I don't think it'll happen. But hey, you know. We'll let the people decide. I promise to let the people decide. Uh, it's boring. That's my biggest objection. It's dull. It's anything. Um, but anyhow, um, so so very good. Anyway, so I, I encourage you to, as I say, to spread the word about it, and uh, you know, let's see, uh, let's see how how far we can go. You know, if we get up to, uh, you know, we're at ten thousand now. After two weeks, it's exactly uh, fourteen days tonight uh, since we launched the campaign. We've raised ten thousand dollars in the first fourteen days. We still have thirty-one days uh, of the campaign, so we're one third of the way through our campaign. Um, if we can get up to like twenty-five thousand. You know, we could do this for at least six months. Um, you know, maybe more. So that would be awesome. So anyway, definitely spread the word, and uh, we will see what we can do. So thanks very much, everybody, and uh, I will see you guys for chapters four and five if you can make it on Thursday. If not, the uh, recordings of this will be posted very soon. Not like my the tradition of my podcast where uh, we take sometimes quite a while to process them. Um, And goodness, for those of you who have been listening to me for a long time will remember how long I used to take to process them when I was doing this all by myself before I had my excellent production team. Um, So anyway, I'll get this recording up very soon. And uh, uh, so you can always be able, you should always have the opportunity to hear, even if you can't attend the class, to hear the previous class before we do the next live one so that you can jump back in again. So anyway... Thanks very much, everybody. Good night. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed. Bye now.